Welcome back to the Wise Athletes Podcast. Today, in episode number 51, I speak with Dr. John Day, the co-author of The AFib Cure. We all know people who have AFib, and statistics say one in four of us will experience it at some point. In my opinion, learning to avoid it and how to stop it is mandatory for the older athlete. Dr. Day is an EP cardiologist specializing in heart rhythm abnormalities at St. Mark's Hospital in Salt Lake, Utah. He graduated from Johns Hopkins Medical School and completed his residency and fellowships in cardiology and cardiac electrophysiology at Stanford University. He is the former president of the Heart Rhythm Society and the Utah chapter of the American College of Cardiology. Dr. Day is a true expert in arterial fibrillation, commonly known as AF or AFib. If you've ever wondered about those weird or missing heartbeats or just wanted to be prepared if you ever do, listen in to better understand what makes AFib more likely to strike and how to put it into remission if you do get it. All right, let's talk to Dr. Day. Dr. John Day, welcome to the Wise Athletes Podcast. Hey, thank you so much for having me on your show today, Joe. Yeah, well, I appreciate you spending some time with us. I, I've, I've listened to your podcast many times and you really have uh, great information that you share. It's not really just focused on your professional capacity, but you've got information on staying healthy as well as on heart health. And I, I found it very helpful. And so I was delighted when you agreed to come be on the Wise Athletes podcast. My podcast is focused on the older athlete and how we can stay strong and have good athletic performance now, but also into the future. And so hearing about things like AFib is scary. It sounds like a, one of those problems that you really don't want to have if you can avoid it. And if you have it, you want to be rid of it. I'm tickled to have you on to help me and my audience understand this better. But before we dive in, Dr. Day, could you give our audience here just a bit about your background and the, the work that you do? And can you tell us the difference between a cardiologist and a cardiac electrophysiologist? Absolutely. So I am a cardiologist and also a cardiac electrophysiologist. And I know that's a lot to say. And so once people become familiar with this, they often just call us an EP uh, for electrophysiology. Okay. Um, and so what is the difference between the two? To become an EP or cardiac electrophysiologist is an extra two years of training once you finish your cardiology training. And uh, EPs, our focus is on basically all things electrical with the heart. Hearts that beat too fast, too slow, too irregular. And AFib certainly falls in the too irregular camp and often can go quite fast as well. And so during that extra two years of training, our focus, there are many treatments that we have, for example, ablations, where many times we're able to get rid of these arrhythmias by mapping out the source in the heart with a catheter and then cauterizing or freezing to make them go away, pacemakers, defibrillators. And so clinically, that's what I do. Um, mm -hmm. I'm located at St. Mark's Hospital in Salt Lake City, Utah. And as you mentioned, I also have a, in addition to AFib, also have an interest in longevity as well, kind of my own personal journey. And I'm an right. exercise fanatic as well. And so I, I share that same bond or kinship with uh, your audience. That's great. Uh, we definitely have the right guy on here to help us. Can we start this discussion by you telling us a little bit about this connection between the older endurance athlete and AFib? Uh, I've heard multiple times that it's more common among long-time endurance athletes. Is that true? Do we know why? 
It is true, unfortunately. With, with atrial fibrillation, if you will, there's, uh, it's kind of a U-shaped curve. The couch potato is at high risk of developing atrial fibrillation. On the other end of the spectrum, that endurance athlete. And from the studies, we know that it's the more races you do, the more competitive you are, uh, that tends to be associated with a higher risk. And that risk has varied in studies. In some studies, it's just a modest elevation. In other studies, it's up to a four to five-fold increased risk of atrial fibrillation. So that's what we know about it. The people that seem to be at the lowest risk are people with regular, moderate levels of exercise, more the recreational athlete, not really at that competitive level. But the couch potato and the competitive athlete are at risk more with endurance sports. Why is that the case? And we don't really know for sure. There's a lot of theories, perhaps a very high sustained cardiac output for prolonged periods of time can result in greater pressures within the heart, um, which then can stretch, disrupt electrical pathways inside the heart. Uh, Using my layman's brain and trying to imagine what was similar on the two ends of that U-curve, the couch potato and the athlete. And I guess I would just have to guess that the reasons that they each get it are not the same, that there's some different mechanism there. When you say the highly competitive, that says to me max heart rate. Their heart is really high toward the high end of what's possible and staying there. Is that what you're thinking as well? Right. And and that's often what we will see clinically in our practice. It's that patient who, say, is running several marathons a year, or maybe they're doing the ultra marathons. Maybe they're training for the Ironman competition. Uh, maybe it's that athlete that, you know, we have races here where they may go on a 100 or 200 mile bike race or uh. long distance uh, cross country ski. But it tends to be long distances or long duration, high sustained cardiac output, and it's in a competitive situation where they're training, there's a time. Um, They're not just doing it as part of their meditative retreat, but rather it's it's all-out competition. Yeah. All right. I was wondering how common it was, and you had said within this um, older endurance athlete population, as much as five times more likely, but what is the prevalence of it? Is it, you know, 1% or 10%? Right, right, right. So great questions. Um, And like I said, as, as far as looking at how common this is, the studies are all over the map. Some may show a 40 or 50% increase, others multiple magnitudes higher. I don't know that we truly know because every athlete is different and how they train is different and what their goals are are different, family history, all that factors in. In general, if there are also studies that show that if you were to round up everybody in the U.S., about one in four will have at least one episode of atrial fibrillation at some point during their lives. That could be at the very end, that could be earlier, and there are lots of factors. And and you were spot on when you said, it sounds like the mechanism is completely different between the couch potato and the ultra endurance athlete. And that is absolutely the case. And one other thing that we didn't talk about is also the autonomic nervous system or the kind of the background nervous system. For example, the couch potato 
tends to be more of a sympathetically driven autonomic nervous system because they don't do much. And so any activity is results in an exaggerated sympathetic response um, where they get the high heart rates, higher blood pressures with minimal activity. On the ultra athlete end, it may be more of a vagal response. We know a lot of these patients that at rest, their heart rates may drop down into the 40s, 30s with these ultra endurance athletes. And yeah. so it may also just be an imbalance of autonomic tone with the couch potato being more sympathetically driven and the ultra athlete more parasympathetically or the, the rest and digest as opposed to the sympathetic, which is fight or flight response. Just so that I can try to understand that a little better, is it a blood flow to the heart issue that is causing scarring in the heart that interrupts these electrical signals? And if that's true, then is the blood flow issue, you're saying when, it, when it's an overly parasympathetic situation that the blood flow is too low because of that? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure I'm getting it. Sorry if I'm not explaining it right. Maybe I can just take a, a step back at this and... It gets confusing. If you back up more, the heart is a pump. It's got valve. It's got a plumbing system, and it's got an electrical system. And when we're talking about arrhythmias and atrial fibrillation, we're talking about disruption of the electrical system. What people often think about with heart disease is more of a heart attack type situation where obstruction of blood flow. And so we talk about this scarring that can sometimes take place with Uh, ultra endurance athletes. For example, there have been studies done looking at marathon runners and maybe up to 10% may have small little micro scarring of their heart just from these long competitive races. I think certain people are more susceptible to it than others. It also has something to do with their time and how vigorous they're exercising. And these little areas of micro scarring Could it possibly be blood flow related? Perhaps. Um, It may also uh, have something to do with just the sustained high cardiac output physiologic state, which can then lead to that as well. And so the sustained cardiac activity level then somehow is, it's just beyond what the structure is quote unquote, designed for, and so it creates damage. But not in everyone. Um, and I, yeah. and to put this in perspective, I see far more, far more couch potatoes with AFib. Yeah. Uh, and the couch potato to go along with it, typically they're overweight. They've got sleep apnea. They've got diabetes. They've got high blood pressure. I see far more cases of yeah. atrial fibrillation in this population than that ultra endurance athlete. Okay. Uh, And so just to put it in, and there's also a paradox of sorts. For example, the Tour de France riders, these people have been studied extensively. Sure. Former Tour de France riders have a lower mortality rate. They're less likely to die prematurely. They live longer, but they're also more likely to get atrial fibrillation. Um, And so there's there's somewhat of a a trade-off there. Yes, a Tour de France rider is going to live five or six years longer than the general public, but they also may have an increased risk of atrial fibrillation to go along with it. Um, So there is somewhat of a trade-off. Not everyone gets atrial fibrillation. I don't want to scare your listeners, uh, but it can play a role. And so 
what do I do? As, as I mentioned, I, I'm a huge exerciser. Uh, yeah. I love to, to ski, to hike mountains. I love to run long distances. And so for me, I, I love to do it. And I will typically go on a run for an hour or two each day. Um, but I'll keep my rates at lower rates, um, more of a plotter than you're not going to see me all out competing for first place in my age division in a marathon. But rather for me, it's it's more of a meditative thing to go up. If I've got a couple hours, two or three hours and go on a trail run in the mountains, I'm going to do it. But it's going to be at my own pace. Going back to the Tour of France athlete, that's not really a randomly selected subset of the population. Those are special people to begin with. Right. <laughs> and probably anybody who does a lot of cardio exercise gets some health benefit from that. And maybe that converts into a longevity benefit as well. But this AFib thing perhaps is also related to doing a little too much of what is otherwise good for you. Okay. Well, and I realize that this is not something that's out to get the endurance athlete, uh, but that's who the audience is here. So we can just speak to that, not the couch potatoes. For that audience, then what are the things that increase the likelihood beyond if there's anything that we know? I mean, you had said already long periods of time with elevated heart rate and people who are competitive. So, which is a sort of a, another way of saying the highest heart rates that they can sustain because they're trying to beat the guy next to them who's also trying to go as hard as he possibly can for as long as he possibly can in this race. Are there other risk factors? Just because people do endurance exercise doesn't mean they don't have other kinds of chronic metabolic issues or you know blood pressure type issues. So are there other things that people should be aware that maybe there's more reasons to get these other things dealt with than just they're supposed to? Absolutely. We know that Family history or genetics plays a role. And genetics plays a role in at least 20 to 30% of the cases that we see. Okay. As far as from a genetic standpoint, more common in Caucasians than in other ethnic groups. But family history does play a role. If your mom and dad both have had AFib and they got it at a young age and you've got three brothers and two sisters with AFib, there's probably a gene in the family. There's, there's something going on there. So yeah. genetics plays a role. But lifestyle is also critical as well. Weight is a huge predictor of atrial fibrillation. The leaner you are, the less likely you are to get atrial fibrillation. Oh, that's interesting. So that older athlete that maybe is 20 or 30 pounds above where they should be, and now they're pushing their heart hard, may be at higher risk at, of atrial fibrillation. So okay. weight plays a role. If, if your goal is to beat AFib, uh, leaner is better. We also know that diet plays a role. I mean, I've yet to hear a case of somebody telling me that eating too much broccoli put them into atrial fibrillation. Yeah. But conversely, I've heard many times, uh, fast food, greasy food, overeating, what have you, kick their hearts out of rhythm. Are you saying that like as a, an immediate trigger of an episode? It can be. Oh. Or within 24 hours of doing something like that. Uh, that's interesting. Because I was understanding you to talk about kind of long-term chronic things that eventually could make it more likely for this condition to arise. But you're saying there's also this stuff that you could you would do in the moment that would trigger an event. 
Absolutely. And let me tease that out because there are there's this com this chronic substrate for atrial fibrillation, um, where it leads to scarring from whatever mechanism, whether it's high blood pressure, diabetes, being overweight, uh, running ultra endurance marathons and, you know, trying to run a hundred miles in under 24 hours type thing that does lead to some chronic or could lead to some chronic micro scarring of the heart, which then predisposes you to atrial fibrillation. So it's kind of that or aging as well plays a role in that. But then there are also acute triggers. For example, even in teenagers with perfectly normal hearts, they shouldn't have anything wrong with them. They drink too much alcohol it can put them into AFib. And I've seen many cases and we call it the holiday heart. Alcohol is a big trigger. So there can be these acute triggers where if somebody is particularly stressed out or anxious on a specific day, that acute trigger can kick them out. But usually it's a double hit. Usually there's something smoldering in the background that we've we've been talking about, but then there can be an acute trigger which pushes them over into an episode at that moment. That's really interesting. Is I wonder if these acute triggers give you a peek into the future and maybe could alert you to something that's been building in the background, but it has never come up, but now it's starting to, because you put extra stress on it, whether it was some very hard athletic thing or extra alcohol for whatever reason, or, and maybe caffeine. I'll tell you the one thing that has caused me to have the most, like, what is that? What is happening in my chest has been caffeine related. Is caffeine one of these triggers? So great question there. If there have been a number of studies where they interview patients and ask patients, what are your acute triggers? You know, what certain things are likely to kick you out of rhythm immediately if you do them? And interestingly, of course, alcohol is number one on everybody's list, but caffeine or a bad night of sleep or stress, anxiety, it always seems to be right behind alcohol as an acute trigger. So if you talk to patients, they'll often tell you caffeine is a trigger. But the paradox is when you look at studies involving populations of people and you run statistical analysis on it, when you look at it objectively from a scientific study, caffeine does not seem to be an acute trigger with the exception of energy drinks, energy drinks. And it's probably what's in the energy drink, whether it's the sugar load, the artificial, whatever crazy other things I've put into an energy drink, but outside of energy drinks, at least in the scientific studies, caffeine doesn't seem to be a trigger. However, if you ask patients subjectively, what kicked you out of rhythm, caffeine always seems to be among the top three responses. So what do I tell my patients? I tell my patients, if you feel like you are caffeine sensitive, that overdoing it on caffeine kicks your heart out of rhythm, don't do it. Um, But if you find that you can tolerate your caffeine, then the studies would support that it doesn't seem to be an acute trigger of atrial fibrillation. Okay, great. So the triggers are personal. Uh, People are different. And I guess I'm also hearing that sometimes you can get these acute triggers because you were talking about the college kid who goes into AFib. Well, he probably doesn't have a lot of scarring in his heart that's been building up over years. So you can get AFib, at least the symptom of it, atrial fibrillation, that is just acute and there is no chronic part of it. But for the 
audience here, I think mostly what we're talking about are people who have been exercising hard, maybe racing a lot for a long time. And there probably is something in aging, you'd said already was a risk yeah. factor. So for the people who maybe are predisposed to it, it's been building over time. And these acute triggers might fall into two categories. One is giving a peek into the future. And so if if somebody has one of these acute triggers and they feel something funny, that might be something to look into and figure out how to deal with that. And then for the person who knows that they have it, learning what their own triggers are, that would be worth, that would be knowledge worth having so that they can avoid that. And that leads me to uh, this next area of question, which is, it's more than just a, a nuisance. I have heard that it's progressive, meaning that the more it happens, the more likely it is to happen. Is that true? Right. Um, w- there is a saying in the medical field, AFib begats AFib. Um, and some of my older patients would refer back. It's like kind of like that old record player. You're wearing a groove in your heart. And so it wants to go into this alternate uh, rhythm there. I would say in general, yes, it does tend to get worse with time unless something changes. What could that something changes be? For example, uh, let's say that ultra endurance athlete backs off a little bit on their uh, level of exercise. I've seen AFib go into remission. Or my more typical patient who is overweight, has high blood pressure, diabetes, they drop 20, 30, 40 pounds, the AFib goes into remission. Or perhaps Uh, As I mentioned, most of my athletes, I should say most of my athletes that get AFib, exercise is their drug. I could not scale back my exercise. It It is part of my DNA. It is my antidepressant. I cannot scale it back. And most of my athletes with atrial fibrillation usually end up getting it treated with an ablation because they do not want to take the medications because the medications will compromise athletic performance. And they can't dial it back. And so they usually opt for an ablation. And usually we can get rid of the AFib and they can get back to competing and doing everything that they enjoy doing. Um, And we tend to get better results in our athletes than we do the couch potatoes. So that's usually the pathway. But you're right. It does tend to get worse with time unless something changes. What you had said that AFib begets AFib is a little different than it gets worse with time. I guess I was trying to get to confirmation that the reason you shouldn't just live with it as a nuisance, like, ah, heck, my heart is doing that thing. So I'm just going to, you know, I'm just going to live with it for today. And then, oh, and I shouldn't eat that hamburger. So I, I won't eat another one until I forget. That mindset is not right. If it's true that every time it happens, it makes it more likely for the next time for it to happen. You really need to do everything you can as soon as you know that this is a thing for you to keep it from happening at all. Okay, hamburgers are out or alcohol is out or maximum heart rate exercise is out. Once you have identified that you have it or you're prone to it in order to keep it from getting more likely to happen. Am I understanding that? Yeah, you've you've got you've hit on a few good points there, and if I might just uh, comment yeah, a, yeah. a little bit is so for 
our audience, the uh, athlete, the for the athlete, there are specific triggers for athletes that I see all the time for atrial fibrillation. Exercising in a dehydrated state mm. or electrolyte depletion state are huge. And my athletes will typically tell me that if they haven't properly hydrated or they've pushed themselves too hard in a certain you know, temperature, weather condition, mm. they're more likely to go into atrial fibrillation. Uh, optimizing the electrolytes. And on the electrolyte side, making sure that magnesium and potassium levels are optimized the best they can. And hydration status is critical um, for athletes, especially as, as they, they get older. And, and there were two, you correctly picked up on two things that I talked about, AFib begats AFib. The more AFib episodes you have, it does lead to some scarring. The heart is more likely to scar quickly more quickly when you're having more AFib episodes. So you don't want them because the AFib episodes lead to more scarring, okay. which then in turn leads to more AFib. I also mentioned over time factor because we've talked about aging plays a role, but it's also how fast you are aging. If you can slow aging to a crawl, then uh. AFib is less likely to get worse. If you're aging very fast, um, and so it comes down to the basics. You want to optimize your nutrition. You want to keep your weight in check. You want to make sure that you're optimizing your sleep. You want to make sure you're optimizing stress and anxiety levels. You know, you want to take care of these things. And then also being smart about your exercise. Don't go for a long, crazy run or bike ride in a dehydrated state. Uh, make sure that you know you're taking care of yourself along the way. Yeah. Okay. Now I got it. Thank you. That is really good. Let's talk about what the alternatives are for people. You had talked about ablation, and I, I think that that really is sort of, especially for this audience, that's sort of the goal. That if I if I could just get it to go away, I promise I'll be good in the future. If you can just make this problem stop, and I think that's what the promise of ablation is. And there's I think a lot of success with that. There are other things that can be done. I'm assuming uh, you had mentioned medication, but you also said that there were some issues with that related to athletes and then lifestyle changes, I guess, getting yourself healthy, slowing your aging, as you put it. Are those the three categories? Yeah. And, and that's really, if you wanted to boil it down into a nutshell, what, what can the listener do? if they want to minimize or avoid atrial fibrillation or reverse, it's living as healthy as you possibly can in all areas. That's really what it comes down to. And atrial fibrillation, at least in the general population, is more of a marker of premature aging. Uh, it tends to be a marker of somebody who maybe hasn't taken care of themselves as well as they should. Yeah. And they are experiencing that faster aging. In the athlete population, family history often plays a role and they're pushing themselves to extreme levels. And maybe they're compromising on sleep. Maybe their stress and anxiety levels aren't under control. Maybe they're not exercising in a smart way when it comes to optimizing fluid status, electrolyte status. These may all be playing a role. And I think even more big picture, and you had mentioned a while back is, oh, here's that AFib thing again. I'll just push through it. 
This isn't something you want to push through. When you are in atrial fibrillation, the heart has four pumping chambers. The two upper chambers are not pumping. Your cardiac performance has just dropped 20 to 30% while you are in atrial fibrillation. So your engine is compromised. And if you are one of those competitive athletes, you don't want AFib. You're not going to win that race if your heart is going into AFib. And the more episodes you have, the more prone you are to have more episodes. So you do want to jump on it immediately. But it's not just that. When the heart is out of rhythm, it can lead to blood clots in the upper chambers of the heart because the upper chambers are not pumping. So the stroke risk is very high for patients with atrial fibrillation. The heart failure risk is very high for patients with atrial fibrillation. So it is not something that you want to ignore. It will, it will bite you in the end. Even if you think you can push through it, it will bite you in the end. Yeah, it's not only just getting worse, there could be immediate fatal consequences from it. So deal with it for sure. People should do the lifestyle changes. They already know what they should be doing in order to be, to live longer, to be healthier. You know, they're getting a lot of that advice from their doctor already. They should just, this is another reason that they should do that. And exercising isn't all that is necessary. Let's leave the medication to last because I I think that for this audience, taking medicine that's going to keep your heart rate low and, and things like that is going to be so unpleasant that people are not really going to be interested in that. Let's talk about the ablation first. Tell us what you're doing and how long is it? Is it like open heart surgery? And then what's the success rate? So with ablation, it is an outpatient procedure, in and out, same day. No, it's nothing like open heart surgery. Excellent. We run a catheter up through a vein in the legs. That's a vein, not an artery. And so running a catheter up from a vein into the heart, the patient is asleep. It's a, we're in and out in under two hours. Patients then are observed for about three hours after, and then they're home. And as far as returning to the gym, returning to vigorous exercise, I usually tell my patients five days and you can go back to full activity, full exercise levels. So from that standpoint, it's not major surgery. People can get back to their training very quickly. And so from that standpoint, it's it's very well tolerated. Yes, there are risks, but the risks continue to get lower and lower with time. Technology is getting better and better. And yes, there were cases in the past that maybe ablation couldn't fix. But for us, at least with our athlete population, the vast majority of them, we can get rid of their atrial fibrillation. They seem to respond especially well to ablation therapy. Sometimes we have to go back in a second time and do some touch-up. But for the vast majority of our athletes, we're able to get AFib in the rear view mirror for them as long as they're smart. For example, if, if they don't go crazy with the alcohol, they make sure they're exercising in a well-hydrated, optimized electrolyte state, they do fine. They don't get AFib again. Um, as long as they're being smart about how they, how they train afterwards. Well, that sounds pretty good. Uh, you didn't mention a, a number, but you said almost all. So are we talking like 85% or? Now, there also are factors. Um, from, it d- depends on age. For our younger crowds, so our, say our 30 or 40-year-old athletes with atrial fibrillation, we are pushing 90, 95% success rates in that group. 
Great. In our older athlete, maybe it's 80 to 90%. Uh, okay. We do better with men than with women. For whatever mm. reason, men seem to respond to this treatment better. But even in our women athletes, we can still get fantastic results. Well, those numbers sound pretty good. I would be inclined to give that a try if I had I had this issue myself. Let's talk about next. So for the person who has it, maybe they've had the ablation and it has eliminated the problem and they don't want it to come back or it's it's really cut it way back. It hardly ever happens anymore. The topic now I want to talk about is when they do have something that crops up and they want to put a stop to it, what should they do? You talked about making sure that they're hydrated, uh, that they've got electrolytes. I mean, is there anything else that people should do, carry around with them so that when they forgot and they ate that stupid hamburger again, why did I do that? And now that something happened, how can they put a stop to it to minimize whatever damage perhaps is happening under the skin? Right. So we're, we're basically talking, what can you do to stop that acute episode? And yeah. You know, what are some things in your in your toolkit? And and every every case is different, and certainly they'll want to work with their doctors to find out, and we'll talk about some of those uh, options. But yes, wearable devices are fantastic. I encourage all of my patients to get one of these EKG AFib smartwatches. For my iPhone users, I love the Apple Watch. For the Android users, uh, Samsung has an AFib detecting watch that can also run EKGs. But Fitbit and many of these other uh, companies now have all gotten in on it as well. With my athletes, a lot of my athletes like to wear these, these super high-tech heart rate monitors. But as a cardiac electrophysiologist or EP, I want to see the EKG strip. So as their doctor, I want the EKG. Seeing a little blip on their, their monitor doesn't yeah. mean anything to me. I want to see the EKG. I want to confirm. And so I strongly encourage all of my patients to have some sort of a wearable device. The computers in these devices are pretty darn good. They're not 100% accurate at diagnosing AFib, but they're pretty darn good. Uh, so if your yeah. Apple Watch says you're in AFib, odds are you're in AFib. Not always, but most likely you are. If your Apple Watch says normal sinus rhythm, odds are your rhythm is probably just fine. Of course, there are exceptions. They're not 100% in diagnosing. So that is important. But to stop that acute episode, we've talked yeah. about some with the athlete state, you know, getting hydrated. Optimizing your electrolytes may break it. For some of my patients, they'll take a nap or go to bed and then somehow during the process of sleeping, when they wake up, their hearts are back into rhythm. I have had some patients, and don't try this one at home without talking to your doc, but for whatever reason, in some of my patients, they have an acute AFib episode. They'll go out and exercise, and as they get their heart rate up, it's almost as if they can overtake the AFib and bring it to a stop. And I say don't do this yeah. at home because for most patients, when they go into atrial fibrillation, their heart rates tend to get extremely high. And exercising in an AFib state can get you to some very, very, very extreme heart rates. So make sure you've discussed this one with your doc first before trying that one. Um, meditation works for a lot of my patients. It's stopping an acute episode. I've had patients tell me they'll stand on their head or do some crazy pose 
that will, in, in many cases, break it. Or a vagal maneuver like coughing or bearing down sometimes will break an episode. One other that also works well is what we call the pill in the pocket approach. And this is something that they would need to be in partnership with their doctor for is taking an antiarrhythmic, say for one of the most common in a situation like this might be a medication called flecainide. It requires a prescription. They're not taking that antiarrhythmic every day. They, they keep it, maybe they have it in a little plastic bag in their wallet or in their purse or the glove box of their car or wherever. And then during that acute AFib episode, if they can't quickly stop it naturally, they may take an antiarrhythmic, which then will get their hearts back into rhythm within an hour in most cases. And so that is also an option of bringing it to a stop. Nobody wants to have to go into the ER after a, a long exercise and uh, but sometimes that is necessary. If nothing else works, you may need to come into that ER uh, to get your heart shocked back into rhythm. But for most of our patients, there are other ways that they could break it or partnering with their physician and going other options. Uh, for most of my patients, going to the emergency room is the last thing they want to do. Yeah, those are good tips. And probably, again, it's going to be different for different people. So if they're in that situation, they should try these things in discussions with their doctor, because this is not something they should be doing on their own uh, and just figure out what are the things that help them, whether it's getting their heart rate down or getting their heart rate up or coughing or whatever, but certainly getting the hydration right and the electrolytes right. That makes sense. Uh, I wonder if there's anything else. I, I'm sort of getting to the bottom end of my list of questions and, and then I'll just open it up for anything else that you think we should know. Uh, you mentioned something on one of your own podcasts that I thought was just fascinating. Uh, I wish you'd talk about it here. Right side versus left side sleeping. Yes, this uh, is something very fascinating. And I, throughout my career, I've always been fascinated as I try to talk with patients to get clues. I find that most of my arrhythmia patients naturally gravitate to sleeping on their right side. And I always thought, why is that? Or patients will tell me, if I lay on my left side, I feel my heart. And from a, a mechanistic standpoint, when you do lay on your right side, it does, gravity does pull your heart to the center of your chest. So if you yeah. are having an irregular heartbeat or premature beats, you are probably less likely to feel them. If you are laying on your left side, gravity is now pulling your heart up to your chest wall. And so you are more likely to feel every little skip, bump, jump of your heart. And so arrhythmia patients become very in tune with their hearts. They can feel every little misfire, not all of them, but many of them develop this sixth sense or this spidey sense that they can detect any little irregularity. And for them, sleeping left side down, they're more likely to feel it. Does it actually cause AFib or not? There, I've, there's very, there are very little data on this. I saw one small study, not very well done, suggested that maybe sleeping left side down increases the risk. But then more recently, I saw a study that says it doesn't. 
So personally, I don't know that it makes a difference from what I've seen with my patients over the years, but they are more likely to sense an irregularity if they're left side down. Yeah. The reason that it caught my attention was because I have just recently become aware of a difference in my own physiology where when I, I don't move at night when I sleep. And so when I go to sleep on my left side, I wake up on my left side. And when I go to sleep on my right side, I wake up on my right side. So, and I track my heart rate with one of these wearables that you were talking about. And I have a fairly significant difference in my heart rate, depending on which side of my body I sleep on. Interesting. And sleeping on my left side, I get very low heart rates. Mm -hmm. And on my right side, it's up like five beats. Wow during the night. So I was just pondering that when I encountered your left side, right side thing. And I thought, huh, there is differences there. I wonder what that is. Anyway, that's irrelevant to the AFib question. Before we leave that, there is one other uh, area of sleeping and that's sleeping on your back in atrial fibrillation. Okay. If anything, sleeping on the back is probably the worst. Why is that? For many folks, when you sleep on the back, on your back, especially if you're carrying extra weight, you're more likely to have sleep apnea episodes. Yeah. Um, you're yeah. more likely to snore, stop breathing in the middle of the night. And that is important for atrial fibrillation because sleep apnea quadruples your risk of atrial fibrillation. And so for many of my patients, if they can learn not to sleep on their back, they're less likely to snore or have sleep apnea episodes. Usually their spouse or sleeping partner can help guide them on this. And usually the spouse or sleeping partner can make the diagnosis of atrial fibrillation. So if your spouse or sleeping partner tells you that you uh, snore like a train and then you'll stop breathing and gasp for air in the middle of the night, that's a classic case of sleep apnea. And that's also the person who's probably heading toward AFib unless they make some changes. Yeah, that's so interesting. I wonder, does anybody know why that is? I mean, often that's associated with being overweight, which we'd already talked about being a risk factor for AFib. But also the the other thing that I, I have always wondered about with the sleep apnea was just sort of the oxygen deprivation that comes of that, you know, not breathing for a while and then gasping for air and and that happening hundreds of times every night of your life. Being totally oblivious to it. Yeah. Are you aware of any physiological connection or is it are they just associated with each other? So great questions. Why on the back? Uh, it's felt to be just the weight, the all the extra tissue, fatty tissue in the neck collapsing the airway at night if you're sleeping on your back. Yeah. And you're right. It's those drops in oxygen levels. And sleep apnea patients will often drop their oxygen levels down into the 70% range, 60% range wow. at night. That's unhealthy for the heart, causes massive blood pressure uh, fluctuations. Uh, triggers AFib episodes. So I have seen many cases where people just get their sleep apnea treated and the AFib goes into remission. So sometimes that can be a simple fix. So, and then for other folks, if, uh, because wearing that CPAP machine or whatever at night can be difficult, but for many of my patients, just getting them off the back. Uh, there are shirts, for example, you can buy t-shirts, you can buy on Amazon with a little pouch on the back, put a little tennis ball in there and uh, you'll learn really quickly. Don't sleep on your back. It gets you off your back and may help with sleep apnea, may help with AFib. 
Very clever. Very clever. Well, okay. Well, that was the end of my list. Uh, it, was there anything else that you think our audience should hear about, know about related to this? No, I think we've we've covered it all. I will say, as, as I mentioned in the, at the beginning, is for that competitive athlete that can't give it up, that is suffering from AFib, and they're doing everything right. They've optimized everything else in their life. Yeah. Their exercises or their workout routines are optimized. Everything is optimized, but they're still suffering from AFib. Don't be afraid of the ablation. And that's usually where my athletes end up after everything they've done. If nothing else works, that's usually where they end up. And our studies show that the sooner we can get people treated with an ablation, the better their long-term success rate, helping to stop that negative spiral that we talked about earlier in the program. And so especially in the athlete, if they've optimized everything, AFib is still there, I would quickly move to an ablation. That's your best bet to get it behind you and to keep doing what you love doing. Fabulous. Well, that sounds like great advice. How should people find you? I've, I've mentioned your podcast. Uh, you know, uh, I think you also have a blog. Uh, tell people how they can find you, and we'll also get all that into the show notes. Excellent. So I've written two books. They've both uh, been bestsellers. One is the first book was The Longevity Plan. Uh, about our five-year research project studying this group of centenarians in remote China that have the highest percentage of centenarians in the world and kind of breaking it down, what makes them tick. The second book is The AFib Cure. Uh, That one came out this past year. It's been out about eight or nine months. We're still in the top 10 on Amazon in the cardiovascular space, which is pretty good for a little AFib book, beating out all of the diet books to prevent heart disease. Really? Um, So that's out there. I do have a monthly... Uh, newsletter on optimizing for longevity and normal sinus rhythm, uh, which is the rhythm that we all want to have. I have a podcast. So there are many ways, or just find me on my website, drjohnday.com. Excellent. And all of the rest of that, they can find through that website? Absolutely. Fantastic. Dr. Day, thank you very much. I appreciate your help. Excellent. And thank you so much for having me on your show. It was my pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening in to my discussion with Dr. John Day. His talk gave me hope that if AFib came calling for me, I would have a solution to give. If you would like to know more about AFib or Dr. Day, be sure to check out the show notes at wiseathletes.com. While you're there, you can sign up to take a free fitness practices assessment, send us a question to address on the podcast, see all of our episodes, subscribe to our podcast, and you can sign up for a newsletter. If you are on social media and enjoyed this episode, please post about it. That'd be a great help. Thanks again.